Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in a room. This is you uh, in a room. I don't know where you are, but thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to me talk into your head. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. My name is Brad Listy. I think most of you know that. I figure we should start with some mail. Let's do some mail. I've been getting some interesting email lately. Here's one in particular that I would like to share. It's from a listener named Amanda. Dear Brad, she writes, What the fuck, dude? You rude motherfucker. Why did you delete your Facebook profile? Are you okay? I'm worried about you, man. You were on a roll during the holidays posting some darkly funny rants and other status updates that honestly made me LOL on multiple occasions while at the same time making me wonder, is he okay? And then when I went to check your wall the other day, you were gone. Poof. And then I listened to the podcast and I heard that you deleted it. I feel like maybe these are warning signs. Deleting a Facebook page is virtual suicide in the modern age. Are you suicidal, Brad? Please don't be. I don't want you to die before me. It can't end like this. Sincerely, Amanda. 
So hello, Amanda. Thank you for writing. I appreciate it. Thank you for your concern. Uh, I am not suicidal. I am not suicidal. It's not an option as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I've been on the losing end of that, actually. I lost a friend to suicide when I was in college, uh, and I know uh, what that, uh, what's the word? I know what, I know what happens in the aftermath to those who are left behind. It's brutal. So I've, I've ticked that off my list of possibilities. Unless, like, you know, I have, I'm like, you know, 90 years old and I have some terrible illness and it's extremely painful or something like that, then maybe that's an option. But otherwise, no. You know, um, I, I think it's selfish and I think it's a shitty thing to do to people who care about you. And, uh, you know, I guess what I've come to in my brain is that, uh, you know, life is tough. It's very difficult. It's often very confusing, but I think that, uh, sticking it out to the bitter end is if nothing else, uh, a hero's way to go. And, and, uh, not to mention the fact that I'm way too cowardly to ever do something like that. I simply don't have the courage. Uh, but you are correct in saying that I did commit Facebook suicide. I'm no longer on Facebook. I no longer exist uh, in that realm in a personal way, and I feel you know fairly certain that I never will again. Uh, but I, you know, I, I, the podcast still has a Facebook page. The Nervous Breakdown still has a Facebook page. So if you want to follow uh, the show, you can do that. But I'm not there on a personal level, and uh, I think the reason is that the site was making me uh, hate everything. <laughs> It was making me hate people, uh, including myself, and I found that as I reflected upon it, as many of us do, that the effects of uh, Facebook were largely negative. Uh, I thought it was like a destroyer of valuable time and energy, and yet I was addicted to it. That's the thing. I hated it, but I couldn't stay away from it. I didn't have the personal strength of character, uh, the fortitude to simply have an account and check it occasionally. You know, like once every two weeks or once a month or something like that. And, you know, some people can do that, but I was there every day and often, uh, multiple times a day. Usually I was there multiple times a day, looking at my wall, scanning my wall compulsively, uh, looking at people's vacation photos, uh, pictures of their, uh, desserts and their children or whatever. Uh, you know, these things that amount to lifestyle advertising campaigns and exercises in savage narcissism. And, uh, it was making me feel bad. And it was giving me the creeps, and I decided to pull the plug. So, you know, I could go on. It's such a tired conversation. I feel like I've talked about this more than any other thing I've talked about on this program ever. And uh, I'm just at the point where uh, I had to be done with it. And I didn't just deactivate either. I deleted. I sent a letter to Facebook and said, scrub me from the site. I want to be gone. And uh, presumably they will do that. Though I guess I have some some questions about whether or not they'll actually follow through. I sort of have this feeling that Facebook is going to hang on to my information forever, which is another good reason to get you know get out of there. But uh, you know I'm also a hypocrite because I'm still on Twitter, so it's not like I'm totally unplugged from all this stuff. But I actually like Twitter. Uh, like I find Twitter uh, useful, and I like the the brevity of it. I like the limitations. I like the compression. And uh, I feel like in its present incarnation, Twitter is a useful way to aggregate information. And uh, most of all, I like it as a humor site. Like for me, it's a, it's a great joke machine. And I like to write uh, funny tweets. And I like to read funny or unusual tweets. And uh, it's sort of like a mental exercise. It's not uh, too dissimilar from trying to do uh, the crossword puzzle in the, in the New York Times or something like that. Like I like to sit there and... and uh, make it kind of a mind game where I try to come up with jokes. 
I try to make myself laugh. I try to hopefully make other people laugh. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, something positive in that sort of attempt, even if my jokes often fail, which I suspect they do. And I don't use it socially. You know, I don't get into conversations. I'm just trying to record weird thoughts in a big vertical stack. So that's how it, that's how it makes sense to me for now. Uh, so if you want to be socially networked with me, you still can, Amanda. Uh, and you can follow this show on Facebook. It's still there. And you can follow it on Twitter. It's not like I've totally disappeared. I'm just no longer on Facebook. Facebook's just a mess to me. And uh, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to do it. I had to do it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. My guest today is Panio Giannopoulos. His new novella is called A Familiar Beast, and it is available now from Novella Books, a terrific indie press and uh, I'm very pleased to have him here on the show. We had a very good conversation not too long ago, and I'm excited to share it with you. So let's get to it. Uh, here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Panio Giannopoulos, and his book, once again, is called A Familiar Beast. Man, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I'm not one of those writers who said, you know, when I was 25, I took my first class, and then I started writing. I loved books and writing from a really young age. But... You know, it's hard to make it as a writer. So I had moved to New York City after college, studied English, um, that, you know, cash cow degree. And uh, <laughs> I have a film degree, so. Right. Yeah. So I was in New York. I was you know, working as a waiter, a bartender, doing you know, odd jobs like that. And um, I decided to just get a regular job. This is how I thought at the time. I need a regular job. So I applied at some magazines. In fact, one magazine I applied at was Playboy magazine, strictly because of the holiday party. And the, yeah. <laughs> if any, I'll be paid a pittance, but the party will be amazing. I was going to say, just because of the strength of the article so impressed you. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know, they could, they need my heavy hand. So I, anyway, long story short, I ended up working in publish in book publishing and I really liked it. And it was this, it was this um, entire industry I never thought of because when you're an English major or when you're just a heavy reader. At least I, I tended to read books that had been published 20 years before. I wasn't reading contemporary writers. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like I read a lot of dead authors. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. I've gotten better. Yeah. I've gotten better. But like, especially when I was younger, Yeah. Um, I was always looking backwards. Right, like. right. I mean, I, I spent so much of my time reading writers from the twenties and the thirties and right. And then, and then, and then you get out of the country and you start reading the Russians and you start, you know, you're not reading modern Russian novelists. You're, you're dealing with kind of the big greats. So the good thing about publishing was it made me read 
contemporary writers and get a sense of what was happening right now. Right. Anyway, I did that for a while. I got into editing. Turned out to be pretty good at it. Uh, you know, it's a skill you develop, but it helps if you're a writer. And Wait, let me stop you there because <laughs> this is something that I think often gets overlooked: is like what a skill uh, it is to be a good editor. Oh yeah, it's definitely a skill, and you it's not innate. I mean, you really need to work on it. And but some people are talented, like in, in, you know, natural have a natural gift. Yes, yeah. Some people just like are. some people are natural, like have a higher talent level as a writer. Right. But the issue of talent and, and learning has really, I've been thinking about this a lot because, uh, because I have a daughter who's nine, I have three kids, but I have a daughter who's nine. And I feel like I've been remiss in pushing the hard work angle. You know, you got to work hard, you got to work hard because we're such an artsy household and it's really easy to conflate, you know, talent with ability in, in the arts. Right. And, I, or unlike, talent with success, you mean? Yeah, I guess talent with success. Just saying, oh, you know, either you've got this sort of spark or you don't. Right. And then, of course, yeah, you have to work hard, but, you know, you've got a voice or you don't have a voice. And, you know, my wife is a good singer and she has this great voice. But she also sang from the age of four and trained it professionally with her dad. And it's hard to disentangle those. But all my daughter sees is the end result, which is a mother who can sing and a father who sounds awful and can't <laughs> sing. So she thinks some people have a talent, some people don't. Right. Uh, so with editing, I'm... You know, I, I wonder about that too. You know, what is, I think, well, how did I learn to edit? You know, what did I really do? No one ever took me aside and said, you know, here, here's what you do. This, this is poorly done. This is well done. This is what you're going to build. It was just kind of reverse engineering all the writing and all the books that I liked. And then looking at this kind of this manuscript and thinking, well, how can I make it more like that? Well, and it's also the cultivation of creative empathy. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, like, it's like, I feel like, and I speak from my own experience because I feel I, I was very, um, critical of myself when I was in workshop and when I was getting my MFA, because I didn't know how to function. I, I could sense that I wasn't functioning as well as I maybe could have mm-hmm. when I was critiquing other people's work and serving in some sort of editorial capacity. And what I noticed about myself is that I would always read someone's stuff and I would wind up even if I didn't want to, I would wind up telling them how I would write it if I were them, mm-hmm. as opposed to like actually like kind of uh, perceiving the thing from their perspective. Well, th- that's really interesting because I always felt like to be a good editor, you have to be a ghost. I mean, you are absolutely invisible and you can't think like you. Right. You have to think like them. And that was one of the things that I found uh, really useful, I guess, uh, as a writer was you take on this identity. You are the author as much as you can be. When I was editing, I edited Tony Bourdain, who's probably one of my most you know, well-known writers. Yeah. And editing him was, first of all, it was a treat because he's a natural storyteller and he's just interesting and funny and smart. I just want to hang out with him. Yeah, I think everybody just wants to hang out with he's, that guy. He's a fascinating and, and great guy. And But editing him was, you know, become Tony. It was a kind of acting. Like, I got to think like Tony. I can't think like me. Right. And um, I remember once when I sent one of his manuscripts off to the copy editor and it came back <laughs> And the the copywriter, she had cut out all the motherfuckers and all the cocksuckers. <laughs> just thought they were too dirty. Just ruined it. Just, and I thought that's the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do as an editor. Yeah. You, know, you can pull it back a little if you need to. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but sorry, this is the most long-winded answer to your question. But I did editing for a while. Yeah. And I liked it. But I also found it uh, – what's the word? It was taxing. It was like cognitively taxing. Yeah. And also creatively because I would go home and – 
you don't really edit it in the office. You don't sit around and drink your martini and edit during the day. You just do all that kind of crazy admin work that uh, takes up your day and phone calls and writing copy and things like that. It's a hard business. Like, okay, and, and this is where I want to kind of like, I'm, I'm putting this together in my mind. I could mm-hmm. be totally off, but like, it's starting to make sense to me. Like you get through that experience of editing and working and publishing, which is a really difficult business. It's yeah. difficult to succeed in. The workload is, is mm-hmm. high. Uh, people don't tend to make a ton of money. No, definitely uh, not. <laughs> and you know, you know, and I've been inside. Like one of the most eye-opening experiences of my uh, career as a writer was going to the Simon and Schuster offices, mm-hmm. which I was so interested in and excited to do because it was like right. you know, it's this big moment. Like I yeah, have a publisher, Schuster, right? And then you go into the office, and I swear to God, it was the most oppressive. <laughs> like I was just like, That's oh, fantastic. and everyone was like quiet. And oh, it's like, little cubicles and yeah. desks, and you know, these. It's it is. It's totally not what you expect it to be. I mean, I hadn't glamorized it at all because I never thought about publishing as an industry, but then I had this job and I would run into people in New York and they would think of it as this kind of cool or culturally relevant, you know, job. And it, to me, it felt, we, it just felt like on the hinterlands, you know, it was very, that was one of my uh, frustrations with it as I went on was one, it was sapping my energy for writing. I felt like I could, I really wasn't writing very much. It was kind of like I, if there was work and then there was writing and then there was, you know, personal relationships and I could have two or three, two of three at the same time. Right. So if I were happy in a relationship and working, I was not writing. And if I was in a relationship and writing a lot, I was really slacking off on work. <laughs> right. So finally I decided, uh, and then I wrote a novel and then tried to publish it. And I thought, and part of the novel was really a response to so many very, to me, very, very boring novels I'd been reading. And I thought on submission. And I thought, I can't do it. I want to do something that's kind of aggressive and funny and strange with a really dark protagonist who just acts out and you know knocks things over, really pure id, and nobody bought it. And I was heartbroken. I couldn't understand. It was like I'd thrown a tantrum and I didn't understand why everyone didn't love me. Right. <laughs> I think that's what I might have just done with my most recent book. It needs to be rewritten a little bit. It's hard. You know, I think I went back to it recently and I looked at it and – I like it. It's got this crazy vitality to it. And I wonder if I could, I don't think I could do it now yeah. because I, I'm much more, I think, self-aware and, and kind of emotionally interested. I mean, my character, I don't think I use the word feel once in the entire book. <laughs> he just <laughs> runs over like kicking things over. just an automaton. Yeah. He's just a, he's just an angry bundled up, you know, unaware yeah. machine. But, um, well, anyway, I did that. And then I left publishing to work on my writing. I did that for a while. And then I went back to it. Because I had a kid and I thought, okay, time to have a regular job again. Right. You know, that, that was fun for two years, but you know, time, <laughs> to, time to be conservative. Yeah. And I, w- I was in the lucky position of going back as an editor and what I didn't want to do was acquire because I found that whole element of things really taxing, you know, going out and meeting agents and, and doing all the stuff that would have served me really well now when I'm a writer. Right. right. <laughs> At the time, it seemed like a pain in the ass. Yeah. Instead, I wanted to be a desk editor, which is almost like a British position, which they don't really have in America much. So I would just – they would just hand me books and I would edit them. And that was kind of like making my bones. I mean it was just book after book after book. I was just an editing machine. And See, I, I that. envy that. Like I think like it's been – in a sense, you're forced. You, you're reading – way more period than you mm-hmm. otherwise probably would. Oh yeah. And you're also reading way more contemporary stuff than you mm-hmm. otherwise probably Tons would. Tons of things. Yeah. And and I did that and I liked it for a while because it was it was fascinating and I was editing everything, you know, from nonfiction to fiction to, I mean first novels to to well 
established writers to you know every, all all of these comedy books, memoirs. Uh, you know, I edited a cookbook. I mean, it was it was a real experience. And but then eventually, I did that thing where you know that five year plan, ten year plan. I looked around and I thought, okay, well, if I keep doing this, or if I eventually become editorial director, what am I going to do? And I realized that I wouldn't be doing this. Eventually, you stop editing. Right. That's it's just. It, you know, it ends, you run a company, you know, right. you can't sit around it. You, you hire guys like me to edit. And I didn't, that was the part I liked was getting in there and working on it. You know, I didn't really care about writing copy. I didn't care about finding books. I cared about just working one-on-one with a writer. And it was the relationship I, I, I honestly looked forward to. And I thought, God, that's, that sucks. I don't want to end up not doing this. So what, you know, what am I going to do? And that's when I thought, well, I'll go to law school. <laughs> you know, I'll make my parents proud finally. Yeah, right. And uh, maybe that's what I should do. Oh God! Well, so then I because this podcasting thing just really isn't. <laughs> this isn't the, This isn't good fodder for conversation. Yeah. yeah. Well, I do a podcast. Where's everyone going? Yeah. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll go to law school. I've, I've always kind of, I think I have a knack for that. So I went and I talked to all my friends who had gone to law school. Which at that point, you know, it was a few. I was in my late twenties, and they all loved law school and hated being lawyers. Across the board. I hear that all the time, yeah, which makes me feel be, better. It makes me yeah, better. that made me feel better and then scared. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to do law school then. Forget it. And then I had a friend say, you should go to business school because business degrees are great and you can do all sorts of um, interesting entrepreneurial things. And, and you know, I, I was very much into digital the digital space pretty early on. I mean, not like you where you actually did something in it, but I found it interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, and I, I, I liked, for example, I, was, I used to read my books, uh, my manuscripts on my Palm Pilot. This is the way back, right? With a little stylus, yeah. and people would be horrified. CD-ROM, <laughs> yeah. And people, were, yeah, people didn't understand it. Like, what are you doing? You know, that's. T- and I thought, well, I don't want to carry around all these books. Um, so I was definitely ahead of the curve on the Palm Pilot manuscripts. Yeah. But I thought, God, publishing is moving so slow as far as adapting. I mean, well, this is well I was going to say, I was going to ask you because it, this is what I was piecing together earlier is that it actually. I started by saying it seems a little bit counterintuitive that you would be a writer but have a Stanford MBA. Mm-hmm. But having worked in publishing on the editorial side and having seen the business of publishing from yeah. the inside out, did you go to get your MBA thinking of it uh, from like a corrective perspective? Yes, very much. That would have been the much – can we just cut everything I just said and, and have that as the answer? <laughs> no, no. The, the, the long road is all part of the fun. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, so I did. I went in and I thought – this is the way to jumpstart publishing and move it into the future, at least for my little, whatever tiny influence I might have. And I thought that's the way to do it. If, you know, if I'm going to do it. So I did, I went, I went to Stanford and I mean, first of all, I was lucky enough to get into Stanford because they are very techie, tech oriented and entrepreneurial. That's what I wanted. You know, right. I didn't want to do a heavy finance oriented degree. I just no interest in it. Did, did you express while you were there? an interest in publish the publishing business. Mm-hmm. I did. And a, a lot of people were pretty interested in it too. Uh, not enough to, you know, drop their high paying careers for it, yeah, right. <laughs> but they, they were genuinely, you know, interested in it and in books. And I still get emails from people saying, Oh, what about this? Or I had an idea and, and then you know, nothing ever comes of it usually. But well, I mean this, okay. Cause like this takes us to what, like a great fascination of mine, which is mm-hmm. like how to, how to crack this. Right. Like, I think that there have to be a lot of people out there thinking about it. I think it's on the minds of a lot of people who work in that quote unquote traditional publishing in New York, but you know, you were up in Palo Alto or you were, were you, were you in yeah, Palo, Palo Alto? I was commuting from LA. Okay. So, you know, it has crossed my mind and it seems at least like somewhat logical that if there are uh, developments or if there is some sort of quantum leap made from mm-hmm. the business side, 
you yeah. know, where there's a, a big major reconfiguration of how publishing as a business works, that it might come from the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, it might come from the West Coast as opposed to coming from the inside because you have these monolithic uh, business entities in New York that have existed for decades and decades and have a very defined way of doing things that are part of huge conglomerates mm-hmm. and that have uh, shareholders to which they are beholden. Right. You know, and so they can't uh, tack their sales as quickly as a smaller entrepreneurial yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a classic business school case. We talk yeah. about this all the time where you've got the big companies that just they can't maneuver very Adjust. fast. They don't even want to. So what, what do you think? I mean, did, did, did you come away with anything definitive? Like what do you see? business-wise for publishing in the near term or the long term? Like, do you have any concrete thoughts there? I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, because it, it, like, yeah, to not have them is, is fine because it's such a mystery. Yeah, it's a hard... it is. I don't know. I, I feel like there's a, it's very probable there's going to be some tech solution. I, I feel like print on demand might be the sneaky backdoor that's going to get them out of it. You know, the Amazon wars or the Amazon versus the big six and, and all that stuff, you know, Amazon is smart. I mean, I'm, I I understand, you know, why the big six are scared and, and you know, establishing price expectation for ebooks and, and all that. But at any point, you know, the big six control the talent. So they could have created some ebook alternative, some standardized platform. I mean, I don't know legally how that would work, if that's a monopoly or not. But I'm amazed that they never did some, you know, all six came together. I mean, it was something I was talking about five years ago, which means somebody else must have thought of it 10 years ago. You would think, and, but yeah. you never know, you know? I mean, just standardize the format, you know, and, uh, and, and then you don't have to worry about a third party just destroying your sales or setting the price. Right. Um, I don't know. I think the only way the big six will... Are they big six still? Are they big five yet? I don't well, know if that went through. Like random penguin. That's what I'm calling it, it. Are they? Did it go through yet? Oh, it a, I'm not DOJ. I'm not 100 percent sure. Okay. All right. Well, big, but it, I want it to be random penguin badly. Random. <laughs> <laughs> That's a random penguin. Right. Right it's like double random. Yeah, <laughs> double. Yeah, or double random. Just something funny yeah. and like a little bit less um, dignified. Setting. Right. Random penguin. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> I'm. I don't know. I'm. I'm surprised that they're not trying to come up with a. You know, a, like not a cabal. I just can't do that. But mm. to have all five or all six of them just meet up and, and brainstorm a solution to this. Yeah. You know, but the ebooks, as great as they are for sales, you know, they're cannibalizing paperback sales. And they, they changed the event, the publishing event. I mean, that's a big thing is you had a second shot with a paperback that you just didn't have, that you don't have anymore. You know, it, I remember uh, the P&Ls, like the profit and loss forms that we used to use. This is back in like 2001. Right. And you look at it and you run your numbers and you'd throw and the formula at the time was however many sales you had in hardcover, you would double that in paperback. And then by the time it was 2005, that had changed to however many sales you had in hardcover, you know, you'd, it was a one-to-one essentially. And now I'm sure it's, you know, a fifth, a 10th. I don't even know. I don't, I don't even know if they include that anymore. Um, and it's too bad because I remember as a reader getting really excited for the paperback, you know, like a new, Philip Roth. That's all I pretty much and, bought. Yeah, yeah, and I would wait and I'd say, oh, great, 10 more months. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to read that one. <laughs> UTC Boyle. Right. And, um, and now that's gone. And, but, you know, and, but like, as far as like ebook sales go, um, I, don't, I, I don't even know what the exact number is in terms of what the, uh, the author gets. But, I mean, I think for a lot of authors, like financially, the ebook sales are good. Because yeah, it's you get usually a little... you get 25% royalty on ebook sales. Yeah, I mean. So, you know, at a $10, $10 it's, it's pretty sweet. I mean, and, compared to paperback where you get. You know, usually like eight percent. 
on something that's 15 if it's a trade paperback. I mean, you're doing a lot better with an ebook. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what I'm like. The, part of me thinks to myself, like, maybe it's just about going out and building your own market share individually and then publishing yourself in ebook yeah. without the middleman and taking whatever it is that Amazon gives you or whatever it is that. Yeah, Amazon you know, gives you. I actually know these pretty well because I started a, like, a publishing house. Like um, 70 cents? So they give you 70% if it's above $3. It's above two ninety nine, and 30% if it's less than that. And they can't, like, the, the price is fixed. Like, you set it at nine ninety nine for a Kindle book, and, like, there's nothing else they can do to wiggle. I think you can, yeah, you control the price. You do, okay. Yeah. But I mean, 70 cents on the dollar, that's pretty good. It's not, no, it's not bad. Amazon's really smart. I mean, they, um, look, you're right. I hit my glass. Yeah. Um, they're, uh, they have such, they're so good and they, they, they respond really well. You know, when people, when things start to shift, they, they figure it out. I mean, I, uh, I was on a panel with a bunch of agents and I was the lone editor. This is about a year ago. And there was this kind of, it almost felt like there were, you know, this Star Wars kind of like Amazon's evil empire. We're going to raise up against them. And I thought, you know, Amazon's selling books for writers. So, I mean, I don't mean to, I'm not running around being the Amazon apologist, but I have to say as a, you know, as a writer, most of my book sales are coming through Amazon. Yeah. Well, and the thing too, is that like, um, I'm very sensitive to like the plight of the independent bookstore. I think mm -hmm. they're vital. I think yeah. they do a lot for their communities. I, I don't want to see them go away. No, absolutely not. Um, I try to support as much as possible, mm -hmm. but um, objectively speaking, like the, the, the digital consumer experience that Amazon provides for books, but I mean, for, for a yeah. lot of things, but like the way that they have their algorithm or whatever it is situated mm -hmm. so that when you go to look for a book, they make, I think pretty, astute, pretty good suggestions, yeah, yeah. you know, like they do. all of that stuff. And then how quickly you can just click. And then the book shows up. I just did it, yeah. you know, and I can't, I'm not a purist. Like I, I buy books from pals. I buy mm -hmm. books. Out, yeah, know. me too. I just got a, uh, the, the, uh, the, the new book that building stories, that huge book from Powell's, which was, which was great. Yeah. That's my wife. But yeah, I mean, I, I love bookstores. I mean, I live physically love, I mean, I'd like to go in there. I hang out there. I just feel good in a bookstore. Yeah. I certainly don't want those to go away. Yeah. But it's just like, I think like, you know, you have to give credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. Amazon's created something that's working yep. for a lot of people. And maybe the big six need to emulate or. Yeah. And the thing I, that I find interesting about the big six is really they, they are, you know, they control the talent. They're this big talent house. And I'm wondering how long they can do that. Yeah. I mean, this is okay. This is what the, another thing that's crossed my mind in recent times is like, what happens when JK Rowling or, and I think Stephen King even does something to this extent, but one of these big, huge blockbuster writers mm -hmm. who sell millions and millions of books and have this gigantic readership. Yeah. Uh, what happens when they just say, I'm starting a press and, right. and I think Stephen King does own a press or maybe Published. I know he's published stuff just exclusively through. Yeah. What's to stop somebody from doing that? And well, like, what's the, I mean, it's no different than, you know, Robert Downey Jr. having his own production company. Right. Or, you know, any, any star saying Tom Cruise, you know, having they're like, well, I'm the star. I'm yeah. the one everyone wants. So I don't need a contract with Warner Brothers. I'm just going to have my own production house. And, and why would I share? Why would I share, you know, like on an ebook, for example, why would 75% yeah. of it go to retail and to the middleman when I could just do this on my own? Yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, I think there is still some resistance and there is still a desire to maintain the traditional structures that have existed for a long time. But, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the tipping point could be near. Right. Possibly. One final word on that, though, is I when I left Stanford, I started um, a, like a book development. I don't even know what to call it. Book development house, whatever it is. It was it was digital books. It was young adult serial novels. And I did it with a partner named Dan Kessler. We were we were in Stanford together. 
and uh, most of it was his idea, so he, sh- he should absolutely get the credit for it. But one of the things I liked about it was that it was very fast, and that was the thing that frustrated me about old traditional publishing. Was yeah. we, would, we, you know, we came up with the ideas in April, and you know, I, I, I wrote these um, essentially these treatments, and we hired TV writers, and they would write these sort of short novels, and then by September, October, they were published. You know, and we were going to do a model with like one every month, and anyway, it was just logistically it was difficult, and for all sorts of reasons, things got tricky. But it was it was fascinating to see that you, if you just totally abandon the existing concept of like what a publisher is, you can do some interesting alternatives. And to your point of if something's going to come from the West Coast, I wouldn't be surprised if someone just someone who has nothing to do with publishing, yeah, just comes in and and, and has a totally revolutionary idea. Well, look at I mean iTunes reinvented mm-hmm. the music industry. Yeah, those weren't record industry people; mm-hmm. those were nerds. You yeah, know? like so that could happen. And uh, I think the speed issue is also one that's really you know really interesting. Yeah. Speed to speed to market. You know, because currently it's submit the manuscript, the manuscript gets accepted. It's a year process of design and editing Mm -hmm. and back and forth. And the idea that you could finish a manuscript and then have it out to market in, you know, 30 or 60 days. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And I I think I'm also interested, you know, I want to say uh, like the one that just pops into mind is like David Frum wrote kind of a post-election post-mortem. Mm-hmm. That became an ebook and shot to the n- number yeah. one on Amazon. Mm-hmm. But it's like those kind of books that are topical right. ebooks yeah. that are basically um, you know out and for sale within days of the event that they had. You know those kinds of things for nonfiction. It's tremendous. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense because otherwise, you know, by the time it comes around, you don't care anymore. That's why people write you know biographies of very old people well in advance. And we you know, we had a Pope biography. And just sitting around waiting for the Pope to die. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that or, just... uh, or obituaries. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I just learned like two years ago that they just they, have these obituaries. Yeah, they have them already. Yeah. Because yeah. it always amazed me. I'm like, God, they just did. That's a brilliant thing. Nailed it. That's that really good. Yeah. Why they interviewed that guy? They got him on a Sunday? <laughs> right. Right. So it's fascinating, but um, hard to predict uh, broadly and with accuracy. It's just going to have to, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. And keep experimenting. Mm-hmm. That's what I keep telling myself. But at some point, um, it, it's got to, I've, got, I've got to find a way to monetize. And I think that's what right. most writers struggle with. And not just writers of books, whether mm-hmm. it's fiction or nonfiction, but I think journalists, I mean, I think the whole publishing media business is yeah. up against it right now. And, you know, I know so many writers because of what I do. And I think we all have, or most of us, you know, the overwhelming majority of us have that same battle. And I don't know how to solve that because you know, like when you look at your own career, mm-hmm. you know, you just pull, uh, publish this novella. You're, yeah. I'm assuming you're working on like a ne- the next book or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. I'm working. I mean, I have a novel, but I'm also working on a, right now I'm focused on a story collection. I'm finishing up. Okay. So how do you, I mean, or, or do you have some sort of strategy, like a business strategy? Like this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to build a readership. I'm going to hire this publicist. Or do you it, feel like it's more of a kind of, uh, you know, forget about all that stuff, focus on the creative part, do the best that you can there and then hope. (laughs) I mean, I think there's a lot of hope. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, I wish there were a strategy. I, you know, when this, when my, my, a familiar beast came out, you know, pretty recently, it was a little novella. It was from an independent press and, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to be selling 50,000 copies of this. It's just too hard. It's, it's, um, and 
What, 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 what number did you do? You ha- did you have a number in your head? Like this is a 1000 if I do a good job or is it 5000? Well, I wanted to go into a second printing, which we just did. So okay. that felt good. Yeah. And um, I wanted, I guess I wanted to get it. I just wanted to get it out there. You know, I've been writing for eight forever. It feels like, yeah. and publishing things here and there, but you know, distract with careers and then going to business school and starting a company. And I feel like I never really, I haven't pushed the publishing side of it as much. So I thought, okay, here's an opportunity to actually publishing something I'm proud of and, and get it out there. And then, and then I ran into that wall, which you, know, you kind of brought up of, well, what do you do for a strategy? What's your marketing strategy? Do you yeah. hire a publicist? You know, and I didn't have a publicist. I didn't really have any of that stuff. And, and then I chose to not really push it very hard because I felt – I guess I'm thinking more in terms of a career. I thought if you – and this is very naive. I, I acknowledge that. Right. But I thought I'm just going to try and write the best that I can and um, publish the things I really like. I mean my story collection, you know, I, the reason it's taken me a little while is <clears throat> I cut half the stories out because I didn't think they were good enough. So I'm going to really try and get the best that I can get out there. And then hopefully you build, you know, some loyal fans who like your work. See, I don't think that might, I don't, that might not be naive. That might be intelligent because I think it's very easy if you get into the marketing of a book and I did this where you're online and you're social mm-hmm. networking and you're blogging and you're doing all this stuff yeah. to the detriment of the writing work that you actually really care about. Right. And that ends up, you know, in book form mm-hmm. and it's, it's a lot of static and you can get like, I mean, you publish a book and then I think there's a natural and uh, totally understandable instinct to want to go out there and fight for it yeah, and to yeah. find readers for it and mm-hmm. to make some noise about it because no one else is going to, mm-hmm. Um, unless you do, or at least at the beginning. So I understand that impulse, but it's very easy to like lose an entire year of your life to that. Sure. I mean, I definitely lost, I'd say a month and I had the, I had the benefit of my wife's book came out in August. So she, she disappeared into publicity. I mean, I barely saw her. It was like August, September. She was in New York most of the time or traveling around the country. And, and then, and your wife is Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald. Yes. Uh, actress, writer, singer. Right. And so which was exciting because she was getting all this attention for it and we, you know, we were thrilled and the book was doing very well. But it was hard to just – I mean she was doing nothing else and she was getting really burned out. And I mean I certainly I've seen her publicize other things. So it wasn't, it wasn't new to me. Right. But it was new to me in that it was the publishing side of things, which I'd never seen. And I thought, wow, that can really eat you up. I mean it's nice too. I mean I remember telling an author, <laughs> a friend of mine, he was complaining to me. Uh, this is when I was his editor. And he said, oh, God, I got to drive in and do this interview. And I said, look, just – Is that what you were saying to yourself on the way over here? <laughs> <laughs> he was complaining though. I remember, always remember my advice. He's like, yeah. oh, I got to do another interview. And it's been six weeks. And I said, look, here's, here's how it works. I'm telling you this because you're my friend. Yeah. You're not just my author. In about three weeks, no one's going to give a shit about your book. Right. And you're going to be sitting at your desk and you're going to spend two more years on a novel and agonizing over anyone's ever going to want to read it. So just enjoy like, like anyone cares at all right now. Right. Right. Because it's true. It just goes away. So when my book finally came out and I started doing the publicity, I, I got sucked into it even though I said I wouldn't. And you know, I wanted to do this or do a, a blog or come here and, and talk with you. And then it – but – you just become obsessed with it and you check, you know, Twitter and is anyone mentioning oh, it God, and yeah. is, you know, anyone on Facebook and then you worry, well, am Amazon I just being, rankings, yeah, Amazon rankings. <laughs> they have that app, which is deadly called novel rank, oh. which just updates hourly. So you can just be assured that you'll get nothing done. And, and then there's this gross feeling that I have, maybe it's from growing up in new England where that strange, that kind of, that culture of, um, 
aggressive and like self-punishing modesty where if you, you know, if you mention your book too much, then you feel like you're just kind of whoring yourself out, you know, like, come on, like, yeah. just, it's a book. I'm not selling sham. Wow. Right. You know? Like just <laughs> let, let the book be and have some respect for it. Right. Um, and, and that's been, that's, I've like emotionally, that's been hard is I feel like embarrassed sometimes. I think, God, I'm just like, this is gross. Right. I'm, <laughs> I'm annoying, grossing myself I'm annoying, I'm annoying my friends. Right. I mean, I think they expected more of me. Right. <laughs> and also, you know, the book I wrote is, it's a very, it's funny that it's the first one coming out because it's, it's very sort of serious and, and even mournful at times and dark. And it's got some sort of comic it's moments. cinematic but, too, I found. Oh, uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, but I don't know if you, I don't know if you, I did actually think it would it could work for yeah you know a lot. I was thinking very visually when I was writing it, but when I wrote it, I intentionally I intentionally tried to steer away from having any funny characters because it's something it's kind of a habit I have of like I'll have one character who's really clever and funny and, right. and that just lightens things up. And in this one, not and it wasn't happening, so it's hard to really I find I, I mean I'm envious of people who write like a comic novel because it's like telling everyone hey everyone go listen to a good joke. Right. Like buy my book. It'll right. make you laugh. Right. And I thought, hey, everyone, read this and you'll sort of might have an existential crisis and wonder about your marriage. Right. right. <laughs> Question humanity. Yeah. Just what are you doing? And right. can we really orchestrate our own redemption? And <laughs> so it's it's an especially difficult title for me to just endlessly push. But um, yeah, I, it, I'm glad to talk about it and sort of clear the air because I do feel very ambivalent about it. Well, okay. And, and uh, in prepping for this, I was reading about books that you liked and I forget where I, what I was reading exactly, but it was something online and you liked The Map and the Territory. Yeah, Michelle Welbeck. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I loved that book. Yeah. I read that this past year. It was one of my favorite reads of the year. Yeah. And like that's a guy who I guess he's somewhat funny, but I mean, talk, I mean, he's very he's dark, very darkly. And funny. that stuff, his, yeah. his books sell like crazy. crazy. Yeah. It's just fascinating to yeah. me. Like why that, you know, he's caught on and there's just, there's just like this really, um, well, he's so provocative though. He's provocative. And he's, and there's and he's a, insanely smart. Right. And that, that's what I was yeah. looking for. It's like this cold intelligence, um, and just like extremely, he reminds right. me of like an of of a of a ruthless insect that likes to have sex a lot. <laughs> he's just a horny praying mantis. He's on words. the record as saying this, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but no, there, it's yeah, he's it's a, well he's fascinating. He's like, phenomenal. Maybe right. that's what it is. Like I, I read his books, and you know, there's always he's always there. Every author's always there, but he yeah. he seems particularly present in his mm-hmm. characters, and he's good at making you wonder about him. Yeah, somehow. Yeah, there are certain writers that. It's it's like certain actors, right? Where you you can never like Tom Cruise, for example, like Jack Reacher. Every character he plays, you're like, hey, there's Tom Cruise. I mean, it's it's just Tom Cruise. By the way, the name Jack Reacher, I can't deal with it. <laughs> it creeps me out a little bit. I know, I know, it's really. Um, but Michelle Welbeck, Henry Miller, and there's certain. I mean, Henry Miller specifically makes himself the protagonist, so that 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 one's more obvious. But yeah, where they're they just they kind of take over. Well, and I think too, it's like for me, I always I tend toward the comic. But I think that maybe what you were alluding to earlier, that sort of makes sense to me. That could be kind of a nervous tick. Mm-hmm. Like I need a joke. I need yeah. something to soften this. And you don't, you really don't. No, you don't. And I, it's, it's something that when I'm writing, I mean, it's something I'm dealing with a lot with the story collection because I've rare, I've never written a story thinking it's going to be with other stories. Yeah. You know, it's usually just how, what's the best manifestation of the story that I can, I can do. And so then I think, well, this one has to be different. I can't, you know, I can't do the same thing or like this ending is, is way too close to another one. So as I was writing, um, you know, as I'm writing a new one right now, I thought, oh, I want this one to be a little funnier. I decided like, I want this one to be kind of funny. And, and yet 
funny, you know, detracts from emotion. It really does. It's, it's a camouflage yeah. or a decoy or whatever. And so I find that as I'm, as I'm writing the story, I keep pulling back on the jokes and pulling back on the humor. And instead of going for the punchline, you go for the emotion. And it changes. I mean, it changes the tone radically. Do you ever, do you ever read your own stuff and go, Jesus, where did this come from? Like, or, or like in a good way or in a horrifying way? <laughs> Both. Even, you know, sometimes like something really dark will come out of me. And I mean, I guess that's the process of writing is that you're sort of uh, figuring yourself out somehow. Yeah. Or it's, it can be a surprising experience sometimes. Yeah. I, I'm certainly surprised a lot when I'm writing. I mean, the, the, the right. things that are the most memorable in stories and the best ones I, I did not plan on. Yeah. I just thought, whoa, that's, that's an interesting line. Okay. We're <laughs> like, really? I She's going to so do twisted. that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So I, I'll, I'll surprise myself. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about like, so you and your wife are both writing yeah. and you have a family. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're busy. Very busy. Yeah. And you both are creatives. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know how you navigate all that because I think um, especially for people who have, I mean, I know what, how much of a difference it makes to have a child. I only have one, but, um, how do you balance it all? And how do you find time to work? Like what level of discipline do you need to enforce upon yourself? Well, it's very hard. Yeah. Uh, luckily Molly and I are really, uh, are good about communicating with each other. And if, for example, yesterday I was, you know, I wanted to work and I, I'm working on the story and trying to complete it, but I spent the whole morning with the twins and took them to this indoor playground and we did this thing and, and then I got back at two and she goes, she said, Hey, did you tell Matilda, which is our older daughter that you're going to take her out? And I said, yeah, I've just given up. I'm not writing today. And she goes, Oh, I'll take her out. So she very kindly kind of like took a bullet for me and took her out and did that. So those are impromptu helps, which we'll do sometimes, which I'll just say, Hey, I'll take the kids to the park. Right. But as far as planning in advance, a lot of it is deadline oriented okay. where if, um, if there's a project that's due, you know, and you've got an actual date, I'll sit down and say, okay, I'm kind of the organized calendar version of the of us, and I'll say, okay, let's. I'll, I'll create a schedule and say, you you write now, and then I'll write this time, and you write this, and and we'll kind of block it out and do it in advance and try and stick to it. Molly is a total pro. I mean, she's much better about, you know, if it's on the on the date book, she will go and do it, and I'm I will let myself squirm out of stuff all the time. <laughs> right. I'm really bad about it. Well, and so like that's just an innate thing, or maybe some sort of like. I mean, you said earlier she was like singing from the age of four. Maybe yeah, she's always been. You know, she's been a professional entertainer, right? A singer, actor, and, and now writer. And she, I have the problem where unless I'm getting paid for it, you know, it's hard for me to justify it. Right. So, you know, if you're doing something on spec, which almost everything is when you write fiction, right? You know, um, it's hard for me to justify. Well, I'll hire a babysitter for you know, 12 hours this week. Cause all I think about is, well, am I actually going to earn that back with, right. with, you know, with royalty the, sales? Like, with the really? big advance. Yeah. That <laughs> giant advance because short stories are just burning up people's, really. you know, <laughs> the bookstores. And so I, I kind of agonize over it more. I don't just think, you know, okay, I have to get this done. This is what I'm doing. And, and I think Molly is just, she's, she just treats it as a job and says, okay, this is what I'm doing. I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it and I'm going to do it. Word counts or anything like that, or is it just time? We do time and word counts. For her, I I'm I was her taskmaster for for both of her books, and I just set up two hours or five hundred words, whichever comes first. Yeah, and that does not work for me because I'm a really slow writer. For me, it's too. more like it's more like four hours or five hundred words. That's how I am too. Yeah. and I and for, and I'm also terrible. I need like all this time to like warm up. And yeah, me too. I, I waste about an hour just kind of rereading and yeah. messing around, and and then like then the words actually come in a very short compressed time mm-hmm. frame. But it's yeah. like. 
But I don't, you know, I'd be curious to know. I was just reading, um, rereading Bird by Bird, you know, the, the yeah. kind of classic, sure. book, which, which is great. And I am incapable of a shitty first draft. I really cannot do it anymore. And I'm just – I want to go on the record because I feel I feel tormented and terrorized by this truth. No, I'm, I, I'm so happy to hear you say this because I'm, I'm the exact same way. OK. I can't do it. And, and part of the reason I've been analyzing it, I'm thinking, what is it? Am I just, am I just in denial and, and I, gotta, I have to get over myself? But a lot of the pleasure and the reward of writing comes from having those little sentences that pop or that moment of surprise or unex, you know, unexpectedness. And I don't get it from just a thousand words of crap. Right. Well, I, I look at it and I just feel just feel terrible. Right. No, I see this is the thing because there's a balance that I think you do need to strike in between being permissive with yourself and allowing yourself to have the freedom to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be able to experiment, and you have to be right. able to go in there and um try things. Right. But, you know, there's the other side of it where you're you're so permissive that you uh, permit yourself to write a really lazy shitty first draft. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between or there's a balance that needs to be struck between uh, permissiveness and doing your very best. Right. And I was always a guy like, and tell me, and it sounds like you were probably the same in school where um, I didn't write like a first draft and then noodle with it and revise and revise. I just, it, when I finally got around to doing it, yeah. <laughs> I sat down and I, I really focused and I went through painstakingly and yeah. I wrote the thing the best that I could and I got it right. Right. That's how I like to do it, mm -hmm. as close as possible. That doesn't yeah. mean I don't go back and rewrite the thing a million times. But sure. I want it to be as close to perfect as I can possibly make it every time I sit down. Yes. But also allow myself to experiment. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm feeling home right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's something that really drives me nuts because I, I'm I feel very guilty about it. I think, God, oh, but am I just is this is this me being precious? I don't know what to do, but I can't. I can't churn out. I mean, certainly a lot of my sentences suck. Don't get me wrong. They're not all coming out, you know, glistening with dew, but right. I, I just work them and work them and rework them yes. you know, when I'm sitting there and, and I can't just throw down a sentence and just walk away from it. Do you read aloud? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. I Usually when I'm really done, when I'm done, 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 then I'll read aloud and, yeah. and I'll go back and, you know, I just wrote a story and it, it took me a while and then, and then reread it and liked it and then gave it to my wife and gave it to a friend to read. And then they had some really smart comments and I thought, oh God, you're right. I did really kind of miss out on a couple of things. And so I went back and I added more, but I didn't go back and, you know, rewrite the entire story. You know, it wasn't like that. It was just noticing things that were missing or emotional, you know, screw ups. Right. Yeah. I bet like this last book that I did, I read aloud and maybe it's a function of having done this show, but I just like, mm -hmm. I like the idea of making sure that it read aloud well. Yeah. You know, and I, I picked up a lot of things that I might not otherwise have It's gotten. a good thing to do before you're doing a reading of it. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oops, I did that. No, I, I was reading my book at, uh, at Book Soup. Oh, was it Book Soup? I think Book Soup or Skylight. And I was reading it. And as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I should have cut that adjective. No. Okay. <laughs> this is another thing that people don't talk about a lot is that when you give a reading of a book that you've spent years of your life or months yeah. of your life working on, and then you go stand up in front of people, I think it is common to be reading it and to actually, while you're reading it, make corrections on I the did. plot. Yeah. yeah, I edited as I was reading. As you're reading. And I like, thought, you... like, I do not need that adjective. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just going to end the sentence right here. Yeah. I mean, it happens <laughs> like, all What the... was that joke doing there? Right. I've right. done that. The parenthetical is just gone. Gone, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very strange. But um, So let's talk about your childhood. 
Like, I want to give oh, sure. more biography. You mentioned earlier, I don't even know if we were on the air yet, but you're from Connecticut originally? Well, I was born in Connecticut, but I was raised in Massachusetts. Okay. I was just in Connecticut for a couple of years. Like Boston, Massachusetts? or No, Western Mass, near Amherst. Oh, okay. A little farm town, Shelburne Falls. It was cute. It was great until I was about 15, then I got really bored. Okay. Which then, makes sense. Which makes sense. You're going to get bored anywhere. But, but like 30,000 people small kind of little town? Probably. Maybe even small. There were nine little towns. Um, and then... My parents had a restaurant, a pizzeria, a total Greek stereotype. I was going to say, yeah. And uh, so I spent a lot of time there. And I've written about it a little bit, but not much. Um, I wrote a lot about it in that first novel that never got published, actually. Got all that. Got it out. Got all that stuff out. <laughs> right. And, uh, but yeah, it was it was okay. It was, you know, I've, I have that really super Greek name, you know, Panio Giannopoulos. It's actually Paniotis Giannopoulos, but I, I shortened it a little um, just with friends. And now the whole world, apparently. Right. But I, uh, I, it was a very kind of American upbringing. You know, it's it was. How many generations? Like, would you put your? I was first generation. Oh, you my were parents so you... had emigrated. They yeah. emigrated. Okay. Yeah, my um, my father moved to America when he was nineteen, and then he to New Hampshire, and then went back to Greece. I think early twenties. Married my mom, and they knew each other, and they were high school sweethearts. And then he, and then he came back to America. Well, and so, did, did either of them have a literary bent? No, my mother liked to read a lot, and she she was always reading at the house, you know, in bed, in bed and stuff. And but they were always in Greek, so I thought she just I had no idea what she was reading until I got old enough to kind of translate them. And then she was reading some good books. I mean, there, War and Peace was in there, I remember. But then she also read Total Crap, so I don't know if she was indiscriminate or just you know open minded. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I think it's good to, mi- to have a mix. I, I wish yeah. I had more of a mix. I, I read uh, when I when I really started reading big time when I was about. I'd say about 12, maybe. That's when I got into reading. Um, I was a huge science fiction and fantasy nerd. Yeah, I was I mean, horror. That was, I was a oh, horror. That was my friend Oliver, yeah. yeah. Uh, I read some that, that, That's H-O-R-R-O-R. Right. <laughs> Not the horror novels. <laughs> Not the horror novels that are big these days. Yeah. <laughs> Their own genre. I'm telling you. Like, that's uh, what my, my own joke is that if you should, I just needed to write a book about teenagers biting each other and like, yeah. it'd be a... Minting money—that's the—that's the formula. God. Um, so I, I read a lot, of fa- and so I did read every genre: fantasy. I did read some horror too, um, science fiction. Then I read spy novels. I read detective novels, mysteries. Uh, you know, those sort of actions, you know. And um, I even read. God, I read Jackie Collins. I read Sidney Sheldon. I would read anything. That's good, though. Yeah. Yeah, and and then I—I I don't know. Around fifteen, sixteen, I was—I sort of switched over to literature. Official. I really got into Hemingway and. Yeah. Uh, he was he was like the gateway drug for lit for me. Me too. It's so common. I mean, it's, I almost yeah. feel embarrassed because it's so common. But there's something, <laughs> um, and I've I've argued this with people, maybe even on this show before. It's like there's something. I mean, he's very good. First of yeah, all, yeah, yeah. And the, the, <laughs> I think we know, can all safely say that. Yeah, I mean, he was really good. But there's also something uh, about him and his persona and his writing that for like straight males, especially mm-hmm. I think is appealing. It's the hunting and the drinking and the it's, war. It's also, whatever. you know, I was thinking about it because it's something I've tried to get better with. And I think I did get better with it. I think a familiar beast, um, was a kind of turning point of a book or story for me because I really dealt with the internal life of my narrator. You know, I dealt with like how he felt a lot. I was explicit. I mean, he felt ambivalent. He felt all over the place. But until then, I think I had really taken as a model this Hemingway writing where you have to be a detective in a way or or you just miss it, which is, I think, what happened to me when I was 15, yeah. where you have to, you know, presume, you know, the story, for example, um, God, which was the story? Um, 
soldier's home, I think, when Krebs comes home from the war. And yeah. He's sitting at the table and he's he's you know, putting the bread in the ham fat and everyone's asking him questions and he's not answering. And it's this, you know, th- his absence of response shows like how screwed up he is and how uncomfortable he is at home. And which is, you know, obviously a tremendous and, and, and sophisticated style of writing. But if you if you follow it blindly, you can end up missing what your characters are feeling. And you just you end up sort of not giving the reader anything. Right. You know, it's very hard to do right. Right. I kind of feel like you need to know everything they feel and then you peel it all away right. and then, you know, let it the It tricks you into thinking. It's like Raymond Carver too. Like yeah, that, it's style, exactly Carver. that style tricks you into thinking that it's easy. Yeah. And I think like maybe the most common thing among male writers in their early career is really bad minimalist. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So for me, I, I, I kind of had the two things I had the, I love the kind of wildness and explosiveness of Saul Bellow and Philip Roth. Right? They, they were masters to me and they still are. Yeah. And then I like that quiet, you know, weird maleness of, of Carver and Hemingway. And I kind of stuck them together and sort of took on the worst habits of both, right. <laughs> you right. know, like the mania and narcissism of Roth right. without the emotional or intellectual sophistication. Right. And then, and then that kind of like that, that obscurity of, and, and lack of transparency of Hemingway without that, like deep under, under like emotional under feeling or, or just like, yeah, he doesn't, it's weird with Hemingway. I guess like I have to reread it, but it just feels like, He's picking all the surface details that allude to all the interior. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really get in there and muck around. No, he doesn't. A ton. I know. mean, the the, the four day blow was that the three day blow? You know, he's it's about a breakup, and you know, half the time he's fucking fishing and building a tent. Right. You know. Yeah, right. And I think about that because I'm working a story now, and I gave it to my wife to read, and she said, "Oh, but you know, what about his childhood? And like, what you know, where did he grow up? And and she was asking all these really intelligent, very actor sort of questions of like, where does this person come from? And I was like, well. I immediately got defensive. I was like, well, Hemingway, Hemingway doesn't care. Right. He never tells you like where someone grew up or right. what they do. And you know, you don't have to do that. You know, Carver doesn't give you a CV of, but they, they, you still get the feeling. And so, I mean, that's one way to get the feeling. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, with regard to Hemingway and, and his, uh, his appeal to men, I think like equally, like I found in my life anyway, that like a lot of female authors and just female friends don't get it the same way. And mm-hmm. then when I reread him later in my life, I read his treatment of female characters and I often find them wanting. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the way the men talk to the women, the way the women talk, there's something sort of stilted and weird about it. It, it does feel like two rooms, you know, like the men go over here and smoke their cigars, right. you know, right. they're not, you don't get that interplay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can, I can sort of see, I mean, it's, it, there's just something very manly about it. Almost like to the point where I felt like he was trying to prove something about it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. That's yeah. that's an extra step I can't take. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go there with I me. I can't go there. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he was. Okay. I don't. I didn't know the guy. I don't know much about him. Did you read? Do you ever read any biographies of writers that you really admire? Like, do you ever take that track where you you really love like Philip Roth and you read all of his stuff? And then you go read the biography or, or whatever you can get your hands on to find out about him. I, you know, I did it. I read the biography of John Cheever. Yeah. And I mean, I was it Blake Bailey's. Yeah. Blake Bailey's, yeah. which is tremendous. Yeah. It was excellent. And I knew a little bit about John Cheever because I'd read the letters of John Cheever and I'd edited his son, Benjamin Cheever, who's oh, okay. in his own right, a wonderful writer, a very a funny writer. And he had given me the letters. He was appalled that I hadn't read John Cheever when I first met him. It's like my dad, you've never read my dad. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. It was like the reverse where you get insulted because someone knows you for your dad. And right. He was, he was appalled that I'd never heard of his dad. Right. So I read the stories and, and then John Cheever immediately became one of my favorite writers. Yeah. And so I read the letters and then I read the biography eventually. And 
it was really sad though. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say I was I was I don't know. Do I, you would you wish you didn't know what you know what I'm saying? Did you find yourself going out? Well, you know what? For for example, I'm not reading the Carver biography. My wife read it and it depressed the hell out of her. <laughs> and so I thought, all right, I'm not, and I'm like I'm not going to read the Yates biography. So yeah, I'm kind of dodging it. Oh, Yates, man, that's got to be a bummer. Because these are people that you you know you aspire to at your absolute best. Like I would love to produce something that great, and then you're like, well, is that the cost? <laughs> is yeah. that you know is that the entrance fee? Because that see, sucks. I find my but see that's the thing. Like I always find myself if I, if somebody gets their hooks into me deeply and I I read all of their work, I'm always thinking about them. Yeah, I always want to know the life. I, I can't be satisfied for whatever. And maybe that's why I'm doing the show. You Probably. <laughs> you know, I'm like, who the hell are these people? Right. You know, like how are they doing this or why are they doing this and um, I'm, I'm more, I'm more interested in their letters and their journals yeah. with the stuff that they're not, you know, cleaning up. That's yeah. I mean, yeah, because that, that's the thing too, is that like, I have a friend, I haven't read the Carver biography, but I have a friend who read it and I don't know, it's hard to do well. And I think that maybe there's something truer about those artifacts that aren't scrubbed. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Yeah. Biography can be done beautifully. It's just like. I think some people's lives lend themselves better to it than others. Like Hemingway seems like somebody you could really biography because he lived yeah. this kind of like big life. But Ray Carver, I mean, Cheever, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like these are private people. And yeah, I, very I know, private. I'm sure we both know that from uh, personal experience that a writer's life is not exactly like <laughs> <laughs> and I always think about like autobiography. I'm like, what in the hell would I do? Oh, I know. I think about that sometimes with, you know, with fiction because people often you think fiction is you know, based on your life. And, and I thought, God, if I wrote based on my life, it would be the most boring <laughs> fiction possible. I mean, I'm pretty conflict avoidant. Yeah, right. I hate arguments. Right. You know, like nothing, there'd be no drama. Yeah. It's just be, you know, me walking out of a room, shaking my head. <laughs> but I do you, ever, do you ever feel like I need to take on bigger and weirder experiences so that I might be able to insert myself? You know what I'm saying? You know, I used to, th- I actually used to think that uh, when I was in my 20s a lot, I thought, God, I need like some stuff has to happen to me. Yeah. I need <laughs> to start sleeping to with some with. hookers and doing <laughs> some weird stuff overseas. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, but then I don't know. I, for some reason that went away. I guess enough stuff happened. I got old enough. I don't know. Like things occurred, you know, also going to business school was interesting because suddenly I was around, you know, 300 people desperate to tell their stories. And I felt, and I was the only writer there. And I felt like, wow, this is, this is amazing. So I got a a tremendous amount of background material from a lot of my, my peers. Was it a relief to be that guy in that pond as opposed to being in a publishing house where everybody's kind of like in book world. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, was it, yeah. Did it give you some sort of, did it ventilate something or give you some sort of perspective to suddenly not be surrounded by people who are interested in the same things that you It are? did. It was a, it was a huge, I mean, not a wake up call, but it was, it was like going to another country and reading, a, reading their newspaper, what they say about America, because suddenly nobody cared about books and yeah. not in a bad way. I mean, some of them, you know, they like to read, but they just didn't think about it. And, and they didn't even care about movies much either. You know, they, they cared about financial world and they cared about startups and tech. And, and I remember once I was in a car uh, with four friends, you know, we were you know, newish friends. We'd known each other for a few weeks and we we're going to some dinner. And we're driving along and somebody says, hey, are you going to this uh, lecture by you know, some guy? And everyone said, oh, yeah, yeah I'm going to do that. And I said, wait, who, who is he? I never heard the name. And they go, they, somebody says, oh, it's blah, blah, blah. He's, come on. He's the eighth richest man in the world. And then someone goes, no, 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 he's sixth now. <laughs> and someone's like, no, 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 he's 12th. Because and they started having this discussion. And they knew like the top 15 ranks of the richest people in the world. 
and what they did, their companies, or the way, you know, like trading baseball cards right. or sadly the way I know Spider-Man supervillains. <laughs> and I just thought, oh my God, there's this whole other like database of information, which is, which is also social, you know, like people exchange it and they think about it and they care about it. And I do not have any of this. I don't know any of it. Yeah. It's so weird. I mean, like, when and I not think- to say that they're all, all they care about is money. It was just, these are like the superstars for them. Right. The superstar CEOs. They're the Philip Roths. Yeah, the exactly. The Quellbecks Philip Roths or... and the Jonathan Franzens yeah. and the, you know, Jennifer Egan's of their world. Right. So, but it, you know, this brings up an interesting question and maybe you might have some perspective on it since you worked on the editorial side, but is there, and you have some, you know, some business background, is there any reliable market research out there that can tell us what the market size is for literary fiction, for example? Because, and the reason I ask is a, because, you know, be worth knowing, but also mm-hmm. because, you know, when you spend enough time online in this world, social media wise, the lit blogs, whatever it is, you start, you just see the same people over and over right. again. You know, and, and there's, it's like, how many of us are there? Yeah. Are there 10,000 of us in the country who give a shit about this? Like in a really serious <laughs> I know, it's a way? Number I'm curious to know too. Actually. I would love to know because, you know, for a book in the literary, um, genre or, you know, the literary mm-hmm. realm of publishing to break through widely. Right. That's a, an anomaly. Yeah. You know, and then otherwise there's, it's like, like you know, otherwise, what are we dealing with? You're fighting for like 10, th- the attention of 10,000 people, I think, or whatever. I mean, I'm yeah. throwing that number out there, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was that small. I, you know, I feel like you could probably take the, this is like the data and decisions version from school, but you know, I wonder if you could take 500 of, you know, the, the most renowned literary fiction titles of the past three years and do some sort of regression analysis. And if you break out like subgenre and like, you know, and, and figure out what that market would be, you probably could, I'm sure somebody's done it. Why don't you do that and then get back to me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about, okay. And so another natural question for me, for you, especially with your novella, which I really feel like could be a movie. Thank you. I feel like it has a movie in it. Somehow. I think it could be too. You'd have to build up some stuff. A little and, bit, and but it's I like, think, you know, it, it's got like a, I mean, it wouldn't be, it's not going to be Spider-Man. It's alas, not going to be Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. You know, and yeah. I think I could see it. I'm trying to think of a movie that I could compare it to. And I'm, it's, I can see the movie, but it's, it's slipping my mind. It was a great movie with like Tom Wilkinson and, oh Jesus, I'm going to space it, but it's the it's small, right. but like decorated. So you're in good good company. That's what I like to hear. (laughs) So uh, do you have uh, screenwriterly aspirations? You live in Los Angeles. I do live in Los Angeles. I actually do. I've uh, I've written one screenplay, but nothing really came of it. It was a while ago, about maybe six or seven years ago. And when I finished the story collection and then these some small revisions in the novel, um, I'm actually going to sort of focus on some screenplay writing yeah because one of, of your own stuff or like of your own like adapting your own stuff or just original screenplay? probably original stuff there's there's one there's a another story i wrote or it's almost in a novella really it's pretty long and as i was writing it i thought jesus this this is really like an indie film i mean there's enough that happens and and um i think what what's happening with me is my story writing it's it just it's getting longer and more uh emotionally complex and then plot wise. And I thought there, there's really enough here for a movie. So that one, I think I might adapt into an original screenplay. Yeah. And, and then what about the, um, the form of the novella, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because I think I'm, it's a great form. I do too. And I'm, uh, I've talked about this repeatedly on this show is that like my greatest admiration in literature is for, um, uh, a skinny book that feels heavy. Right. Just because I know how difficult it is to mm-hmm. execute. I don't know. I don't know. That's like what I aspire to. I love a book right. that's like 200 pages. If we're mm-hmm. talking about a novel, yeah. 
that 200 to 250 page novel that just doesn't feel like anything's missing. Yeah. And it feels like it weighs a lot, but yet it's, it's economical as opposed to like the really expansive 600 page novel that, mm-hmm. you know, if it's done well, it can be wonderful, but, um, just my right. taste. And so I feel like the novella is underappreciated somehow. I think it is. And I don't know if it's just like an American thing, like a value meal culture where we think, well, it's only it's 80 only- pages, hundred pages. So, you know, it's not really worth my time. Right. But I like it for the same reasons you do the economy of it. And I like, I guess from the writer side of it, you know, when I write a story, a short story, and this is, I think why I'm graduating away from short stories again, back into longer things. I, I invariably want to know more, you know, I, I, the story I'm working on now, I start writing it from this person's point of view. And I think, but well, how does her boyfriend feel about this? You know, she's acting crazy. (laughs) So it'd be interesting to know him. So then I get, I go into his head and then from his head, I think, well, but this kind of affects his relationship with his brother because, and so the novella allows you that latitude to kind of examine, but it's not like a novel where you can just lose control of it. Right. You know, cause then as I'm writing, I'm thinking, well, you know what? The brother doesn't really matter. <laughs> so I'm cutting the brother because it's just getting just, you know, it's, it's losing its shape now. Okay. So at what point do you realize, or at what point with, uh, this book, did you realize that it was a novella? Did these things usually start as short stories? And then this it- one started as a short story. Right. I had the idea for it. And, and just in a nutshell, the idea was here's a guy, things went horribly wrong for him. Divorce, scandal, et cetera. And he's going to try and orchestrate his own redemption. Uh-huh. And he's going to go to on this, on this weekend hunting trip with his friend. He hasn't seen since high school and they have nothing in common anymore. And it's going to be really awkward. And because those old friendships often are. Right. You know? There's sort of like the three message rule on Facebook. One is like, hey, how have you been? I haven't seen you. And then it's like, great, here's my info. Great, good to hear from you. And then let's get together sometime. Yeah, and then you don't. <laughs> then you like, don't. that's how it goes, and that's fine. Right. But this one, like, they got together because he was sort of desperate, and his friend was desperate. Right. And then suddenly it's like, what are we doing? And the whole hunting thing, too. The like, hunting thing is, yeah. So you're, are you a hunter? I'm actually not a hunter. Neither am I. But that's why I think I, w- I was like, wow, because this is compelling to me because – I can't think of anything that I'd rather not do (laughs) than shoot a deer. I know. I have no interest in killing a deer. I just nothing. Like, Um, I don't understand why that's fun. I don't know. But, you know, my brother-in-law is a hunter and he's, but he's a neurosurgeon, you know, he's a neurologist, excuse me. And when I went to visit him, I had actually set it in North Carolina where he lives. And that's where I, that's where I first saw the deer circling his lawn and he was feeding it corn. And I thought, oh, that's, this is a great. He was feeding the deer? He was feeding the deer corn. To fatten it up before he shot it. But he didn't kill those deer. He didn't. (laughs) And I thought that was such a weird distinction to make. Yeah. And it actually reminded me, this is a stretch, but it reminded me of kind of like the virgin whore thing of like there's women you marry, there's women you have sex with. There's, (laughs) there's, there's, There's deer you kill and there's deer you just fatten up. Right. For other people to kill, I guess. Right. So uh, it's too easy to, in then your yard, <laughs> yeah, there needs to be an yard. element of sport. I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. It's like people who just like take a shotgun out and walk onto the kill deck something on the out right outside. That's too easy. Right. You need to be in a deer stand and you need to be physically uncomfortable. I agree. That's what I think. So he's, he's this guy and he was very, it was interesting to me because he's super smart, super accomplished, you know, very white collar. And yet he likes to put on bright orange hunting outfits and go shoot deer in the weekend. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, so I wanted to put my character in that situation of like a, it's a great a metaphor. I mean, it, it fit. Thanks. You know, I mean, you uh, must have arrived at it. I mean, was that always there, or did you did you did you with did, the, the deer? Yeah, the, yeah, the deer was always there. The hunting I, was always there. The hunting was always there, and I knew that was there. But the story, you know, as we talked about it being a short story, it was really very short in my mind. It was just kind of like show up, this happens, and then boom, feed the deer some corn, and then shoot it. <laughs> just shoot it first. <laughs> put it in a chokehold because right. <laughs> you don't even want to no. have to outrun it. No, yeah. Um, but then um, I, as the story developed, as the as the main character Marcus's uh, sort of 
you know, ordeal or, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of start to came out and you realize what he'd been through. Um, I was, I was interested and I thought, okay, this is, you know, where he's coming from, what's happening to him. And then it's him and his friend and they're in this bar. And I remember this is a pivotal moment for me in the writing of it because I'm in the bar and I was just about to have a friend of Edgar, that's Marcus's friend, come in and they were going to talk about volunteer firefighting because I wanted like a good masculine conversation that Marcus would feel excluded from because he's not, he's not a very macho guy. Right. And neither am I. Yeah. Just for the record. (laughs) Um, except for the leather I wear all the time. (laughs) So, and just as I'm about to have the guy come in, I think who fucking cares? Like really three guys talking about volunteer firefighting. I could not give less of a shit, (laughs) which is a, a, you know, it's a good moment to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I just, I just stopped for the day. I was like, I don't know what to do, but this is a mistake. I can't keep following this. But that's, I mean, that's instructive. I think, um, not only for you and I, but for people listening is that like, and I just went through this with my book, uh, you know, in the late fall is that a, if you're working on a book, whether it's a novella or a short story or a collection or a novel, it will resist you. Mm-hmm. It will resist you when yeah. things aren't going the way that they need to be it going. Absolutely. <laughs> it's true. And it's I got, you hit one of those walls and it's the most maddening and it can be so depressing and like, ugh, it's, it's awful to be in one of those cycles, but you have to hit those walls and then eventually yeah. you find your way around them or through them or whatever. But, uh, it's just, it's amazing to me. Like intuitively the process will not unfold for you unless you find the right way forward. No, you're right. I, I do feel like it's a lot of times when I'm procrastinating, it's because I screwed up somewhere. Right. And I think, Oh, I've got to backtrack. And then, but okay. And so sometimes it's just like, cause I don't know exactly what it is. It's not like you have some sort of like spectacular epiphany with like fireworks it's just like eventually maybe you relax enough to see it or you have to go through that period of days or weeks or months right. or whatever. Like what was it for you that finally got you back to working? Uh, it- well, what happened was I, I it took a couple of days, you know, and I, I just stared at it and I thought – and then I lost all confidence in it. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh, God, I had such a good start I thought. But, man, I'm fooling myself and this thing doesn't work and it's going to be obvious. Or, you know, I, every, you know, sort of self-criticism came came along to party. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then I sat down again. I did this thing where I just forced myself to sit down and, and turn it on because if I think think about it too much, I just won't do it because I'll get too discouraged. And I looked at it and then I went back and then I thought, okay, forget about Marcus, like Edgar, you know, like forget about the volunteer fireman. And then I just had Edgar suggests he's like, hey, let's go meet some women. It was that simple. Now things are interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, really? Like, what women are they going to meet? Really? Like, Marcus is a mess. He's in no shape to meet some women. Yeah. And why is Edgar pushing for this? Like, Edgar seems really screwed up. And so suddenly I became curious. And I thought, okay, great. Let's, let's, like, I did not expect that. Right. At no point were they going to meet women in the story. It was going to be like a guy's weekend. Right. And, but, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. So then, um, and then the next scene I started, and as soon as the women entered the story, that's when I got really interested. I thought, okay, who are these women and why are they putting up with these guys? And, you know, what's the interest here? And are they just kind of enduring them or do they genuinely think they're funny? And why is Edgar acting like this? So it, it became a lot more fun. All of a sudden, it's not a sausage fest anymore. It was not. <laughs> it was a party you would go to. Right. It was a party you would actually want <laughs> yeah. to attend. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I touch, I do this in every interview. Like I touch on something and then we get off track. And um, before I let you go, I want to hear a little bit more about your life and bring people. Um, I don't know, up to speed. Okay. You were in it. You were in uh, Western Mass. Western Mass, yeah. Little Parents town. ran a restaurant mm-hmm. and you went to Amherst for college. I went to UMass Amherst. UMass Amherst. Yeah. Um, 
And then what happens in your twenties? Like, and, and the other thing too, is if you're, if you're first generation, mm-hmm. you speak Greek. I do speak Greek. You yeah. go back to Greece regularly. Yeah. I went every summer, every summer. So you have like a, a real yeah, my family grounding is, there. Yeah. Every summer, cousins, uncles, aunts. My sister moved back to Greece, and my parents moved back to Greece. Oh, they did. When I was in college, things are crazy over there. It is crazy. I mean, are you? What are you hearing? Well, I've been. I've visited a lot lately, yeah. and it's it's kind of depressing. Yeah, it's it's a hard time, and uh, politically, it's a mess. It's a mess. Like, I, I mean, do yeah. you have a sense of how things are going to shake, or is it just like going to be a long grind? It's and- going to be a really long grind, and I don't know that there's. It's this is it's cultural, you know. There's a real. Um, torpor you know mm, yeah it's I, I don't know what's going to shake it up and so what about uh like the, the region of greece that you're from is it athens or are you out well my, the- my parents are from southern uh peloponnesus kind of near kalamata and sparta and all that area megalopoli yeah. you know yeah <laughs> Those, well, which, which we're all i love their olives i know i say that <laughs> thank god for the olives and but they, uh, my mom lives in Athens now, and my my sister lives in Athens, so that's usually where I go to Athens. But I've been you know a lot to Greece, and um, I actually have a friend. I don't have a lot of Greek friends. You know, it's one of those things that I, I don't know why. I don't think I'm a self hating Greek. It just hasn't happened. <laughs> right. But I I, re- I became friends with it last year. I think with um, do you know Dimitri Martin? He's a comedian, yeah, and, yeah, and a yeah. writer. He wrote, he wrote what his is book's he, really good. What is it called? Like this is a book. This is a book. Yeah, it's great. It's really funny. I, I just recently reread it. And he's and I love hanging out with him because he's another Greek American who's and we will sort of just bitch about like weird because his parents, you know, I mean, like his family, the, the family's always had restaurants and it's just like every sort of Greek stereotype that we kind of grew up with. And I'm, I'm Sicilian. I've got a little bit. My grandfather was a butcher. Okay. So oh yeah. Like, you know, wow. Close. I mean, it was like hardcore Italian. <laughs> That's hardcore. Yeah. 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 So I get. A, I mean, I sort of get it. You know. So I had the Greek thing, and then I, and then I moved to New York right after college. To write, I, I figured, because you know, why not go to the most expensive city in the world to become a writer? It's the perfect place for it's a writer. Just, it's smart. <laughs> um, so I did that, and then you know, little jobs, and then of course publishing. Did that for a while, and in the meantime, I was starting. I, I was starting to publish things, stories, and also nonfiction because I found it was easier to place nonfiction, and I liked nonfiction because. With fiction, I found that I was really attracted, especially in my twenties, to kind of horrible narrators. Really, just told. I mean, I think I was experimenting with kind of bad behavior and just like these guys were on a personal level. No, fictionally, of course. <laughs> in my real life, I was angelic. Right. But I, I loved it. I loved the kind of provocation and uh, the transgressiveness. But, but I also wanted to be adored. Because I was, you know, I was used to being the little boy in the family, and you know, patted on the head. So I think that's where my nonfiction, I, I could be kind of like sweeter and nicer, and, and convince the world that I wasn't a total piece of shit as <laughs> evidenced in my fiction. You almost need that to balance it out. If you're, you know, you have these like really dark, you know, protagonists or whatever yeah. in your in your fiction, it's nice yeah. to sort of let. And people... you, oh, yeah, you just want the experience of it. I was like, can I just write something nice about like a kid or like a family that doesn't you know, just hate each other? Yeah, right. So I, I wrote a lot of fiction and nonfiction at the time, and then. Um, and then eventually, yeah, I don't know. I, and not to race through everything, but it was a lot of publishing, a lot of editing, writing. Um, siblings? You have siblings? One sister. She lives in Athens. Oh, that's right. Okay. And so, yeah. and, and she's not a writer. She's not a writer. No. Nothing at all. Nothing. She's not, she likes to read, but she's not like a diehard reader. You know, it's interesting because like I don't come from a family of artists either. I mean, there's a little bit of it. Like my great-grandfather was a pianist. Yeah, that, that's a tough word to say. <laughs> he was Greek, by the way. I have Greek in wow. Yeah, I have some Greek ancestry, but... Um, you know, there's just little bits and pieces of that, but I don't come from a family where like the arts 
are central and were, talk- were they were they um, respected because they weren't even respected in my family. I mean, yeah, but not like my parents didn't even have albums and like yeah, we didn't have music. Right. It was like Footloose. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like my parents like weren't playing the beat. My parents are from the South, and yeah. so culturally, like I don't think that, and they were never. They were of the '60s, but they were not engaged in that culture mm-hmm. at all. Like you know, I was more into the music of their times right. than they were almost, and so. Um, you know, that we had a, I had a great childhood. So, yeah. you know, I, I was very lucky and my folks are great, but it just wasn't like, you know, and they wanted me to do whatever I wanted to do. They were encouraging, right. but they just weren't, I don't come from they weren't involved. Yeah. And I, I get that, I've but talked, that's pretty, pretty lucky to be honest. I, you know, that's the thing though, is that I've talked to people who, you know, do come from those arts families <laughs> and there's advantages to that as well, yeah. you know, and it seems totally normal and they don't have to like convince anyone. Right. And, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not a sell. And so, um, you know, now that you, you know, you're in an, in, um, an artistic family, yeah, you know, both you and your spouse right. are extreme creatives and, yeah. you know, do you look at your children and think to yourself, like, we're probably going to have creatives. This is the, the, the family way. Or do you sense in them? I kind of dread it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Because, well, on the one hand, I think it's, it's sometimes valuable to rebel against someone, not stultifying, but a kind of fairly conservative upbringing. Yeah. You know, for me, arts were an escape. Yeah. You know, not just writing, but just books. Everything was it was exciting for me, and I think God, they're just you know, mom and dad's books are just in the bookshelf, and you know, friends come over all the time, and there are actors and directors and you know, writers. It's just normal, the way you know, my my parents had friends come over who were like literally cobblers and you know, grocers, and I think it's, I mean, if it's if it's, I worry that if it's your world, then it just becomes it doesn't seem special and it doesn't seem important. Right. You know, it doesn't feel valuable. It's just, yeah, that's whatever. Sure. Books, movies. Yeah, Dimitri TV. Martin's in the living room, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Whatevs. Yeah. Um, but you know, on the, on the other hand, you know, I've, I've, re- I've read about, or I haven't read cause I haven't read enough biographies, but it's kind of cool when, when people are like, oh yeah. And then, you know, Picasso came over for dinner and yeah. it's, it, that's pretty neat too. So yeah. Yeah. So no, maybe they'll just get the good stuff. You, you know, you hope I would just be, and can you, can you tell, I mean, I'm looking at my two year old, I have no idea yet, but I mean, oh, which what age? Are, you, yeah. You know, Matilda, our nine year old, she's very, very creative, but she also kind of rebels against it. She was a good painter. I mean, whatever, every kid's, you know, decent. They throw some paint down, but she, she seemed like she had some talent. Um, but then she kind of stopped doing it. I think she felt pressure. You know, my friend, his mom is is a painter and he, he, he was a very good artist. You know, in high school, there's always that one kid who's just awesome. Like that was him. Yeah. And then he, you know, he kind of just stopped doing it after college. And I think part of that, not to psychoanalyze my friend, sorry, but, um, <laughs> no, but part of it is no, if, do, if, if it's, if it's your parents thing, you know, yeah. it's hard to, it feels like you just, you know, in America, you want to individuate, right. You want to do your own thing. Right. So I, I do wonder if part of individuating is like, we're going to raise three little bankers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing too, is that like, I'm always like, you know, I, I very hesitant to push my, my child, my child in any direction just because I know me. Yeah. And I know that if I do, she's just going to do the opposite. Yeah. So you just almost want to just like take the hands off the wheel. And just, <laughs> right. If you notice something sort of gently nudge, you know, yeah. and if, or support yeah. in a supportive way, but you can't micromanage that stuff. No, it's a bad idea. I think, um, all right. Do we cover everything? Is there anything else you want to talk I about? So. <laughs> I don't know. How, feel, to feel, how to feel dress a deer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not the right house. For we that. could get to that in part two. I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I, I, um, I, the closest I've ever come to that was being out on a, a friend's ranch in Montana. Yeah. 
and there was lots of manly talk and yeah. talking about field dressing. But I do wonder if I mean I've never had to hunt or anything, and and I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel like I'm lacking as a man. But there are moments like you know when there was a spider in the bathroom the other day, <laughs> and I'm you know trying to teach my kids don't just murder everything you see. Right, so I'm right. like we'll just get a piece of paper and put it you know. But there was no paper around, so I grabbed a paper towel from the bathroom from the kitchen. But paper towels, as you know, are kind of they, they kind of crumble crumple easily, and yeah. you you want a flat copy paper right yeah so i got it and then the, the spider just disappeared into the paper immediately this like green paper and i almost shrieked you know i was like ah you think it's, you know, it's this tiny little spider and i ran outside dropped it and i was like please be too young for this to like form as a memory you know, just let this go your, your nine-year-old's like dad <laughs> yeah. i was like three-year-olds forget this nine-year-old briber and but i thought like oh god like what has happened you know i mean my grandfather just like routinely slaughtered pigs was so no, nothing to it. Like, didn't even think anything. I was like, it, did, did I swing too far in the other direction? But like, I mean, what's the option? Like a weekend, you know, weekend ranch. Just Maybe we should stuff? go out together and do this sort of like, you know, settle some score. Because <laughs> I, I was, you know, when I was a kid, I like uh, my grandfather. I remember going to like their property. They had a slaughterhouse on the property. Wow. Yeah. And I, I mean, when I say the property, it was just like this, just right outside. Yeah. <laughs> That's a problem. It was in the backyard, you yeah. know. But it was just crazy that way. And I, you know, I can't even fathom doing that. So um, maybe there is something to it, or maybe like if I were in a survivalist situation, I, this is the way that I always contextualize it. Is like mm -hmm. I'll think, you know, what if I had to survive? Yeah. Would you step up and? I think I would. I think. But I have a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn. Yeah, I think I worry about that too. Like, okay, a horrible situation happens. I miraculously catch a squirrel. <laughs> like, really? What do I do? I bash its head in against a stone and like what, rip its skull off, like peel the skin. Yeah, it seems like a lot of, a lot of work vomit inducing steps. Yeah, and, and not only that, but with a squirrel, it's like so much work for so, for so little, little payoff. Like, yeah. wouldn't I just eat an apple? Right. <laughs> just grab an apple or an it, orange, a couple of oranges. That's easy. You yeah. know, assuming, you know, assuming that you're in a place that has such things. Yeah. Uh, well, on that note, <laughs> I always like to close with slaughtering That's squirrels. That's a beautiful image. Yeah. But yeah. it's been really fun talking with you, man. And I uh, congratulate oh, you on the novella and I wish you luck on all of your future projects. Thanks very much. All right, folks. There you go. That is Panio Giannopoulos. Go get his book. It is called A Familiar Beast and is available right now from Novella Books. You can find him online at PanioGiannopoulos.com. He's on the Twitter at Panio, and you can find him on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, thanks to Amanda and everyone out there who's been emailing me lately. I appreciate that. I like the kind notes, the funny letters, the messages of... Uh, existential concern and so on so if you want to email me the address is letters at other people pod.com <clears throat> so uh don't forget to go get the other people app the official app of this program it is available now free of charge for your iphone your ipod touch your ipad or your android device it's the best way the most elegant way uh the most sensual and provocative way to listen to this program so please go get it it's free of charge uh what else what am i going to do today I'm going to sit here. It's a beautiful day outside, but I'm going to sit indoors and I'm going to stare at a flashing cursor. That is what I'm going to do. And what I find is that if you stare at a flashing cursor long enough, you will eventually begin to imagine that the cursor is laughing at you. Please remember that Simone de Beauvoir died of pneumonia and that Nietzsche, Samuel Johnson, and Maria Callas were all nearsighted. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon in just a few days with another conversation with another uh, writerly individual twice a week. That's the, uh, rhythm. That's the schedule. Thanks. Uh, did I already say thanks? Fuck. Fuck man. You know, I'm just trying to be fluid here and I keep repeating myself, uh, twice a week for your entertainment.
twice a week for your entertainment pleasure is how it goes. Thanks for listening. I already said that. Have a nice day. I haven't said that yet. Do something enjoyable with your time because your time is fleeting. And whatever you do, please do not post high-definition digital photographs of your peach cobbler on Facebook. Just stop it. For God's sake, step away from the computer. Back away slowly. Put your phone down. Set it on the floor. Slide it over here. Remember how they do that in movies? You know how they slide the gun across the floor and then the cop like puts his foot on the gun? Do you know what I'm talking about? All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>